Knock, knock. Who's there? Tomato sauce. Tomato sauce who? Don't cross me or I will eat you. How about one more? Knock, knock. Who's there? Planet Earth. Planet Earth who? Planet Earth says to stay home. Welcome to Pod of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. I'm Q Lee. I'm an Associate Director of Communications at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And I'm Jason Smerton. I'm a faculty member within the Earth Institute. Jason, how are you? I thought I'd never see you again. I thought I'd never <laughs> talk to you again, although it's only been one episode. I know, I know. Although there was a good, uh, the good episode in between that you managed to get produced as well. Thanks so much. So what, what's your situation? Where, where are you? Uh, how are you holding up? Uh, we're doing okay. I'm uh, in our apartment on the Upper West Side, just across from Columbia. Things are a lot quieter around here than a few weeks ago. Um, I'm uh, managing as best I can, providing <laughs> full-time childcare uh, for our two and our four-year-old. Okay. Um, my wife is in healthcare, and so she still uh, is. Well, her schedule's even busier than normal. Uh, managing the the crisis uh, at our hospital. Are you managing to fit in any of your own online classes for your undergrad students? I am. I'm teaching uh, Introduction to Sustainable Development, which I teach every semester. And uh, that has all shifted to uh, online. Yeah. Um, I fortunately had a course blog where all of the material and assignments were um, turned into the course blog already. That was part of the class. Uh, and so that help my transition, but I like many of my colleagues at Columbia and across uh, the country and internationally, uh, are, I'm teaching my, my lectures online through, uh, online platform. How is, I mean, how is that transition between teaching college kids, um, online and then being home teaching your four-year-old and two-year-old? What's that like? Well, sometimes that happens at the same time. Uh, you know, I think we're all now uh, much more familiar with uh, cameos from our children and our pets during whether they're online teaching sessions or uh, uh, meetings with colleagues. So like I said, sometimes you're, you're trying to do that all at the same time, which creates um, some challenges, some, some fun times. But um, yeah, I, I take you know, it more fun. It, than... all, it all gets mixed together. Yeah, no, I, I think it's definitely kind of fun. I don't know how much my colleagues are enjoying it. I was actually <laughs> contemplating whether uh, we should just let our two, um, our two daughters, our two kids, five-year-old, four-year-old, uh, take over this podcast. It certainly would be more entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I think they would have some, some useful insight. I, I agree. Okay. Well, we maybe depending on how long we do this, we might have to be, uh, figure out a way to incorporate them. Yeah, let's, let's definitely figure something out. So yeah, when it comes to homeschooling, Tessa has the most uh, remarkable teachers at her pre-K and I'm married to a teacher. And so I can see the daily struggles and, and the challenge that it is to transform your normal work routine into a digital space. And I, I really commend all the teachers for, for doing this. I'm just not sure that Tessa at her age is really absorbing the work that's, uh, or the, the lessons that are happening. I just feel like I need to lock out a couple hours of the day and just create my own lessons or, or something of the sort. And, 
and, and teach her myself. I don't know. Or, um, how are you managing your homeschool experience? <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to call it homeschooling. I'm not okay. sure that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, home my, managing. <laughs> yeah, it's home managing. I mean, our, uh, preschool daycare has been phenomenal in terms of how they've created a lot of online content. There's a Google classroom that they've set up, uh, with teachers reading books and singing songs and doing things like that. Yeah. And they've also been organizing, um, Zoom sessions so that the kids can see each other and still have teacher contacts. Um, and there's a lot of benefit to it. I think it's confusing for the kids. I think our two-year-old has just kind of decided that he doesn't want to have anything to do with Zoom. There's, it seems like there's a bit of a fatigue around it. Right. I think he's probably confused by it all. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems to to bum him out more than anything. Um, whereas I think our, our, our daughter who's older appreciates it a little bit more, but it still can be challenging when you, there's a screen full of 10 of your classmates and you want to talk to them and, uh, yeah. you're, you can't, or it's too much chaos. It's, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. So I think homeschooling in general is tough. And then there's all of the specific challenges with each age bracket that, um, are, are really difficult. Yeah, no. And, and certainly the, like, explaining of the, the situation of why we're doing all this uh, on top of that. And I, maybe I'm, maybe I overthink this a bit too much, but I, I, I think I just want to try to come out of all of this um, better in some ways, at least I want Tessa to come out of this with a, like a sort of a stable sort of mentality and, and not feel like this was a traumatic experience for her being home, not being able to, you know, interact with her parents um, at the same time, trying to, uh, connect with her classmates. Um, so, I, I mean, personally, I just want to try to be there for her as, as much as I can. And, and I, whether that means, you know, you know, setting off specific time slots during the course of the day, just to like teach her about, uh, native Americans or, or geography or something like that. I feel like I, I need to sort of shift into that mode. So on the, you know, you know, we're, we're dealing with home life, uh, work life and, and improvising as we go along. I wanted to talk a little bit about this specific episode, which is about, about health and health outcomes and an interview I did with, uh, Robbie Parks, who's a postdoctoral fellow who, uh, is basically isolated himself up in the mountains in Vermont, um, far from New York city. And, you know, on the sort of on the other side of, uh, I guess the spectrum, you know, he's, he's by himself essentially with, with some friends around, but, but really I, I thought our conversation about mental health issues and isolation and, and all the things that are associated with, um, being in this crisis, uh, was interesting. I don't know. Did you get any, have any takeaways on, on that side? I did. I mean, there, I think we're just starting to understand, at least in the context of this crisis, one of the things that I appreciated about Robbie's interview was the degree to which he talked about the work that has been done, um, in the context of climate change or other, uh, disasters, but what the health, health implications are of this isolating experience, you know, the, in so many ways, the reduction in human contact and being separated. I mean, there's so many stories about, you know, families that saw each other, uh, frequently who now don't see each other. Um, the emotional loss that represents as well as the tangible loss of, um, family and, and friend networks that provide help in so many different ways. I mean, I think we're all familiar with the sense of feeling isolated where, you know, if it's childcare or otherwise, things just feel like they um, are so much and you can't even reach out for help in that regard because of the degree to which we're isolating ourselves. Yep. Uh, so th I think that's really important. 
you know, Robbie didn't talk so much about this in his interview, but there are other public health implications um, and mental health issues uh, around domestic violence and child abuse that uh, has been written about in the context of this moment in which we find ourselves, uh, where the incidence of that kind of trauma is increasing. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, we, we talk so much about the public health implications of the virus and uh, what we're doing to prevent uh, infection from the virus. But I think there will be a lot of uh, mental health fallout from what this experience will mean for everybody who is weathering it in different ways. Yeah, no, and I like the way he put it. Uh, you know, he said he was alone and, and um, you know, how when you're alone doesn't necessarily mean that you're lonely, but it seems like in this world of self-isolation, that is translating more to being lonely and, um, you know, it, whether you're home with a family of eight or, or by yourself, I mean, this is seriously affecting us in, in lots of different ways. Um, the other part of his uh, conversation I thought was great was how, you know, there are researchers throughout the Earth Institute who are looking at the COVID response and the situation that we're in and how it applies to their work. And we made it very clear that there's absolutely no, um, there's no silver lining to what's happening to our world and, and what the pandemic is, is doing to our lives and all of us. There are things that we can take from this and, and ways to analyze um, how we're living our lives and how society is approaching things and the policy that we need to put in place when it comes to things like, you know, a climate change policy versus, um, or not versus, but in a, you know, to go along with a pandemic response uh, policy. Um, I'm just curious, have you, how has it affected your work or how you're looking at things moving forward? Um, It it hasn't affected my work in the sense that uh, I'm studying anything directly related to it, other than it means I do my work at five in the morning. Um, I I think that there's a couple of ways, things to think about. One is from a sustainability perspective, what a crisis like this means in isolation, uh, the, the lessons it teaches us about um, how this virus originated, how it was, um, how it spread, how we need to think about better international cooperation for identifying, identifying viruses and uh, containing them when they do um, begin to affect large parts of the population. Those are important, I think, sustainability questions and governance questions. There will be additional things that we're going to see in this country. For instance, uh, you know, flooding season, which has a direct link to climate change, as well as a stronger hurricane season, are both expected to be uh, challenges that we face moving into this year. Mm. And how we think about responses to things like hurricanes or uh, large uh, flooding events in a period of self-isolation and... uh, and pandemic mm-hmm. that those are huge questions. And they're really these integrated questions that draw from a lot of uh, sustainability angles. Um, and so they're, you know, independent of the virus's connection to climate change, climate change is still happening and how we think about addressing a pandemic while also facing the threats posed by climate change is going to be part of the story moving forward. What about the stories we're hearing now when it comes to emission drops and people seeing the caps and the tops of the Himalayans uh, that they haven't seen in years and coyotes running down Michigan Avenue in Chicago and, and also uh, the canals in Venice being cleared up. Is there anything we should take away from that? Um, well, you know, there's this temporary reduction in emissions and pollution. It's not a good thing. 
for the climate. This is not a good development for the climate. Not only, you know, in the moment, is it not good that, um, we, we should never be looking at a scenario in which hundreds of thousands of people die, um, as a positive way of dealing with this crisis. But, um, I think from the perspective of the climate, significant resources and political capital, um, are being diverted in a way that may not be recovered, uh, certainly in the short term once we're through this pandemic. And, um, I think that's going to have really serious consequences for, uh, the timeline, which is short on addressing the most drastic, drastic aspects of climate change. You know, this is derailing the IPCC process and the conference on party meeting process. All of these things are not good developments for the climate. It's interesting from the perspective of an unintended experiment, similar to the way that we were able to look at, uh, the pollution due to air traffic after nine mm-hmm. 11. Mm. This is a global scale experiment on what the world looks like with uh, reduced CO2, but more importantly, reduced industrial aerosols. Mm-hmm. So those things are you are going to be useful experiments for understanding the impact of those pollutants on the radiation balance uh, and their relation to climate change. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, policy and any, uh, attention on climate change. I think this is a really negative development for the real urgent agenda that needed to be addressed with regard to climate change. And so I, I don't see this as a, as a good development in any sense of the way. What about the storylines around how the pandemic and, you know, coronavirus has been looked at through the lens of like how we respond to things like the climate change crisis versus the pandemic crisis? You know, early on, the, the pandemic was um, politicized. Uh, there were denials uh, being made on on from multiple governments, multiple countries. Um, and then there's a bit of a what aboutism happening, and and a, lo- a lot of you know opinions about how to respond and and what we should be doing. But but in a sense, we've managed to see a global response. You know, half the half the world's population is essentially under lockdown right now. Um, there are some glimmers of hope of possible flattening of the curve that's happening even here in New York City, uh, which is, I guess, at this point, the epicenter of, of the pandemic crisis. Um, I was just wondering, does this give you some measure of like hope and how we could potentially respond to a climate crisis if people start to really, uh, you know, take it to heart uh, uh, or, or start <laughs> really, tr- uh, whether it's trusting the science or whatever, I, I'm, I'm just wondering, does that change your sort of uh, out, you know, belief on, on how we're approaching climate? Uh, no, actually, I think in general, it gives me less hope okay. with regard to, you know, the, the, this whole pandemic situation is like a condensed version of the climate change problem. Yep. What you do early dictates the impacts later on. What you do early is informed by scientific models that can give predictions about where we're going. And so you have to, um, put faith in those predictions and use them uh, intelligently to plan uh, for how you're going to respond to the crisis. Mm. Similarly, you know, with climate change, we have a lot of uh, uh, science-based models that tell us about what to expect uh, now, decades into the future, centuries into the future, if we, if we make different choices. And similarly with uh, the pandemic, uh, those warnings have been disregarded in in many uh, circles. 
And, you know, what we see with the pandemic and what's going to be interesting as we look back on this is that there were lots of little experiments, uh, internationally in mm. different locations about how much people prepared and whether or not they did respond uh, appropriately in the face of the information that they were being given. And the United States, for instance, is a situation that um, unfortunately didn't take early precautions. Mm. And we're now looking at, you know, uh, we're the epicenter of the pandemic and will likely uh, suffer some of the worst consequences of the pandemic because of the lack of advanced action that we took when we should have been. And we had, in many ways, we were given more time than China, for instance, which was essentially given a pop quiz on how to respond to this. We had a take-home test that were pretty much failing. All right. um, and, and so I, I guess, you know, there's one angle of hope, which is maybe there's an appreciation for uh, this kind of advanced information. And we start taking seriously the potential for disrupting uh, you know, our global economy and for global impacts that might uh, be better appreciated as a consequence of climate change. But I'm not sure that that's the lesson that's going to be taken from this. Um, in, in, you mentioned the, the politicization of this. I think what we're seeing in the way that this is being politicized is uh, quite a negative thing. We're seeing authoritarian governments taking advantage of this uh, to consolidate even more power. We're seeing it politicized in this country um, in many negative ways. You, most recently, the decision in Wisconsin to hold their primary election there right. is just, um, you know, a, a disgusting, right. politically motivated yeah. Uh, decision. Yeah, there are clearly forces on the other side that are taking advantage of the current situation and using the opportunity to push their agendas uh, forward, uh, I guess, as the adage goes never let a crisis go to waste. Um, you know, one example being the rollback of Obama era emission regulations, um, from the EPA and, and others that are clearly happening right now. Um, one thing that I'm uh, happy to see at the earth Institute is the number of researchers that are not only doing direct coronavirus work and looking at things like sterile, how to sterilize masks and, and so forth, but how, you know, the, how the pandemic and, and what we're doing is just affecting or changing their viewpoint on their work overall and how um, to, to consider things like, yes, we want um, climate policy in place, but how can climate policy in an age of pandemics, how does that, how does that work? So there, that's all to say there, are, there's a lot of great stuff happening here at the earth Institute. Um, we, I encourage our, audience to, to check in with us, um, as we push this out. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention was, uh, the music that you hear in this episode was, uh, graciously, uh, uh, given to us by Robbie Parks. He said that he's been putting it together during the course of his isolation. And I encourage you to go visit his website, robbiemparks.bandcamp.com. I'll include the link in the description of this episode. Um, all proceeds uh, from the purchase of the album and music will go to a charity called Feed the Frontlines in New York City. And so it's really for a great cause and uh, check it out. Jason, it's been really great talking to you. I miss you, buddy. 
<laughs> I miss you too, Q. This is at least uh, a decent way of connecting. <laughs> yes, for sure. And we'll make sure to get our kids on the next one. <laughs> I think that sounds like a great idea. And thank you for your efforts to keep this pod going uh, in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, no. Uh, keep uh, keep well, keep safe, keep healthy to you and your family, and especially to Rachel, your, your wife, uh, who's out there doing her hard work. Uh, we really appreciate everything. Thank you, Q. We appreciate it. Take okay. care. Okay, bye-bye. I'm joined by Robbie Parks, a postdoctoral research fellow here at the Earth Institute and also with the Mailman School of Public Health. Uh, Robbie, how's it going? How are you? Uh, I'm well, thank you. I am currently uh, working remotely, as most people are in the country, and uh, just trying to keep focused uh, among all this uh, unusual and, uh, frankly, uh, scary times. So I'm well, thanks. So working remotely, where exactly are you right now? I'm actually currently in Vermont. I um, I left New York City and I'm currently uh, staring at a mountain and uh, every day I wake up and sometimes it's covered in snow, sometimes it's not. And uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful <laughs> landscape, yeah. That's awesome. Did you, <clears throat> like at what point did you leave the city? I left uh, two and a half weeks ago, so nearly three weeks ago, and I really don't know when I'll come back, uh, but I would like to come back as soon as I can. Uh, but currently, it seems uh, very um, very unusual, the situation. So everything's on lockdown, right? Yeah, everything's um, totally locked down for the most part, uh, although there are people, you know, still out and about uh, getting their exercise and doing their walks, <laughs> uh, especially throughout Central Park, aside from the masks and, and the, um, six to 10 feet that people are, are keeping, uh, you know, from each other. Um, but yeah, we're, I think uh, at least in the city, we're trying to cope with a obviously terrible situation. Um, how did you end up in Vermont? Like what, what, what drew you up there? Well, it's, it's my first time in Vermont, actually, and I was I was lucky enough to be invited uh, by some friends who uh, are staying up here too, and they invited me to come along and just uh, hang back while um, while everything happens in New York and around the world. And one of the appeals of the place is really how uh, how quiet and how. Uh, distance it is from most of um, other people. So from a public health point of view, I thought it'd be a good idea here if I came up and, you know, I wasn't around uh, vulnerable people in, in New York City. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be invited here. So how are you? Are you totally isolated? Are you hanging out with your friends? Um, what, what's your current situation? I'm with three other friends, so I am not totally isolated, although for the first couple of weeks, I was, or well, we were all concerned about whether we had coronavirus, and so we chose to try and maximize our distance from each other, even within the house. Luckily, the house is big enough that we uh, can actually maintain social distancing um, or physical distancing. And uh, so since then, though, since the weekend, we've been... Uh, more or less kind of living in isolation, but together. <clears throat> and so um, it's it's very pleasant because uh, although it's it could be lonely being alone in your room, uh, right now, whenever I feel too lonely, we just sort of go into the, 
the, the living room and, and we can talk it out and just talk about what's going through our minds. A lot of it is talking through and being more honest with ourselves. It's almost therapeutic to be talking with other people right now. So, right. so that, that feels very fortunate. Yeah. So let me try to compare and contrast to what at least your life was like before going up to Vermont, before self-isolating. You are a postdoctoral research fellow, like I mentioned, at the Earth Institute. Uh, it says you are an environmental epidemiologist. Um, can you just yes. briefly talk about what, what you're working on? Uh, sure. So my focus is uh, environmental epidemiology. So my 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 broad background is I, I did a first degree in, in physics. Um, and then as I continued into my further studies into grad school uh, for my PhD, I became uh, very interested in how I could use my uh, mathematical skills uh, in trying to understand the impact of climate, climate change, the environment on health outcomes and health outcomes being uh, mortality and morbidity. So how people die and how people get sick and the influence of uh, air pollution, weather, climate on these outcomes and how they vary within uh, outcomes themselves. So, for example, if you die of a particular disease compared with a particular mental health related issue, um, how are those different outcomes sensitive to uh, the weather or the climate or your environment? And so that's that's kind of a brief uh, history of what I've been doing. Yeah. So. It, I don't know what it is about this podcast, but I seem to be drawn to um, people with physics backgrounds. And, <laughs> and uh, I was, you know, you, as you mentioned, you, you started off uh, studying physics. I'm curious, before you became a postdoctoral fellow here at the Earth Institute, what, uh, what, what was sort of in that decision making process of, of, you know, why you chose the Earth Institute versus doing something else after you got your Ph.D.? Well, uh, so th there's two reasons why. I mean, part part of it is uh, professional, <clears throat> and the other part is personal. So, the professional side of things, uh, the Earth Institute is, as I and understood it and understand it now, is is one of the leading institutions in in focusing on the cross section of impacts from climate on different aspects of society. And so, one of the appeals was that uh, with this fellowship, I would be given essentially. Uh, freedom to explore my research interests, but within the context of that cross-sectional, inherently cross-sectional space and cross-cutting space for climate change issues, uh, both in America and worldwide. So that was the main uh, uh, impetus for, for trying to uh, obtain a, a fellowship at the Earth Institute. Now, from personal reasons, I've also just personally really loved New York City, uh, both before I'd even arrived uh, as a teenager um, from, you know, the music and the culture. And um, since I visited, just just the whole vibe, I, I love it. I'm, I'm from London in the UK and they're very similar in some ways, but they're very different in other ways. So it was like a new challenge for me from a personal perspective um, but from a professional perspective and a career development um, it's sort of un unparalleled in the way that I can actually develop my career and explore where I want to head for the next 5, 10, 15 years of, of my uh, burgeoning academic career. Yeah and when did you make that jump across the pond? So I've been here since September 2019 so okay. currently it stands about six, seven months. Yeah and, and, uh, and now you're up in Vermont <laughs> quite the 
I did not expect to be up in Vermont uh, uh, six, seven months into my uh, my, my postdoctoral uh, stage of my career, but I'm very happy to be here. Uh, so I, I would like to spend more and more time in New York, though. It's a great place and I love it. Yeah. So how, what is your your routine like these days? How are you working or how are you uh, incorporating your research into being up in Vermont? Well, luckily for me, um, my work is a completely a dry lab. So dry, by dry lab, I mean that I'm basically working with large data sets um, and I work with data science, essentially. So mm. I can do everything remotely using very powerful servers and uh, computing clusters at Columbia and elsewhere. And so my routine really in, in Vermont remotely during this a strange time is broadly similar to the way that I would operate in New York being at the office. I wake up and I try to keep uh, a routine whereby I feel like there's some sort of normality in my life, as I'm sure lots of other people are also. And that would entail just getting up, having breakfast, uh, sitting at my desk, which luckily has a great view, um, trying to answer emails, trying to do analysis, uh, trying to write papers, trying to write grants. Um, but I'm also taking the opportunity really to, uh, to, to try and explore my own personal interests as well. So I've been doing some songwriting and nice. I've been doing some composing because in a, in a previous life, I was a musician for a long time. And so I, I feel like it was a, a great opportunity to, to kind of explore that too. And so I've challenged myself to, to spend an hour or so a day uh, for the past week, writing these short kind of vignettes of music, which are kind of like audio diaries. Um, and I'm just uploading them for, for friends and family and whoever wants to listen to them. Um, so yeah, that's, that's part of what I'm doing. And then I'm just trying to exercise and just maintain my mental health as well as my physical health, cooking a lot more than we would otherwise, um, to be honest, because in New York, it's so easy just to get food from takeout, but finding a new, I'm finding a new, uh, appreciation for, for that kind of stuff here i didn't hear you offer but can i can we possibly use one of your songs or music interludes for for the podcast itself of course of course yeah of course <laughs> do you think it's appropriate I, I mean how is it what's your style is it uh more british pop or is it kind of on the uh more meditative uh walden well, uh, thoreau <laughs> I, I think that if I'm if I'm honest, I think that the the stuff I've been doing while here might be more appropriate, just because that's more kind of meditative and sort of captures the mood of maybe what's going on right now in in the world. Mm. Uh, so mm -hmm. I have some old British, older British pop, and some of the stuff I do with my band <laughs> is more that kind of stuff. But I would recommend maybe the this stuff I'm, I've been doing in the past week or so. Can you tell me what is it about British pop that makes it so popular <laughs> or is that a british no? pop uh <laughs> i mean i just the history of of british pop music yeah when you look at it as a as a per capita basis and i'm really happy that i can ask you this question because i don't think i've ever asked anyone this question before just on a per capita basis you know i don't think there's any country that's produced just on the level of amazing pop music that yes. the uk has i mean maybe south korea these days is is trying to get to that point with all the all the boy <clears throat> bands and everything but um you know ever since the beatles obviously I'm, I'm just wondering if you had an opinion about that well i, I think it, it's a very good question and the uk is 
as most countries are, they're, 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 they're strange in their own way. But the UK is strange in a particular way because it speaks English. And so that is has become the world language through its own history, uh, through its own mostly dark history, actually. But it's also at the, at the border and the frontier with uh, mainland Europe. And so there's this sort of crossover of different cultures and different um, historically mixed um, multicultural uh, places in particular cities in the UK. And so there's a very easy link between, say, the US and the UK in terms of mix of cultures. Mm -hmm. So influenced by uh, the kind of classic rock and roll and, you know, Chuck Berry and, and all that kind of stuff. But then as uh, immigration has ebbed back and forth between the UK and sort of the former empire and mm -hmm. from mainland Europe and elsewhere, um, there's been influence of, of those cultures there. So, so it's, it's really like a, a, an interesting hotbed of culture. Um, and so like when I was growing up, I could always feel like everyone, like every second person was sort of in a band, whether or not they could even play a, a, an instrument or not. And I, well, that, that was in London. Mm. And so everyone was in bands, everyone was growing up just kind of trying to just make stuff, uh, make sounds. And yeah. I always, I always say that actually, I agree with you that, the, the greatest British export currently is is uh, is culture. Mm. I think there's we don't really make that much anymore. We don't really um, do stuff uh, that, that results in physical products. I mean, of course, there are people who do that, but it's much much less these days than it was say a hundred years ago. But the culture and the physical, the, the the music in particular for me is this amazing blend of the world's um, the, the world's influence maybe Americans have this kind of image or this preconception of British people coming over to the US that immediately allows them an audience. And, and I think maybe it's something to do with the accent, maybe it's something to do with the history, mm -hmm. but it allows them sort of a foot in the door where Americans are sort of much more willing to, to engage with it. That's what I found anyway. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I can see that you've, you've thought about this <laughs> a bit and uh, I, I, I'm, I look forward yeah. to hearing uh, your, your music. So, I, sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack you. And we were talking about your your work. You know, we're we're all aware of the physical toll that climate change has on on our planet, and subsequently how it's going to affect us as as uh, as human beings. But less talked about is just how climate change and rising temperatures, specifically, affect us in the mental sort of capacity, and and also um, you know physically affects us as human beings. Um, and I guess in your, your work really dives into this, um, uh, and, and this paper that you came out with earlier this year on the number of deaths that are, that have been, that are being caused or potentially can be caused by rising temperatures thought was fascinating and, and, uh, it got a lot of attention. So I, I also asked you to prepare a haiku <laughs> for, for this podcast, yes. which is what we're <laughs> asking folks to do. Do you want to go ahead and, and read that out and and uh, and then break it down afterwards? Of course. Thank you, Q. I would happily do that right now. Should I, should I go into it? Yeah. Why don't you read your haiku? Okay. So, in a changing world, impacts are often not clear. Look after yourself. Nice. So, that's my haiku. Should we add your music to that <laughs> in the background when, when, when we have it available? <laughs> That, that sounds like a great idea. Okay. In fact, you can put it all throughout the, the podcast, if you like, the episode. That'd be cool. So tell me a little bit, what what does it all mean? So I'll take the first line. In a changing world, so obviously uh, the world is changing at a, a crazy pace. 
both uh, in terms of technology and in terms of our impact on the natural world. And so really that line was trying to capture how uh, everything is changing constantly and at an ever greater pace. The second line, the impacts are often not clear. Well, it's quite an open statement, uh, but really the change of pace is arguably much faster than the way that humans or the planet has evolved to to sort of take account of those changes mm-hmm. so humans are feeling effects of be, not being able to be centered and be used to the current state of the planet and so those impacts could be they rising temperatures causing elevated summer deaths or rising temperatures causing mental uh, health related issues or uh, a global pandemic causing uh, isolation and the effects that the isolation has that's often not clear um, other things can be the impacts of say coastal storms which I'm looking at those impacts are not clear on your mental health or how people are impacted socially uh, as well as um, biologically and then the final line is kind of trying to imply that you have it's look after yourself and it's trying to show that you have an ability and power to to help yourself and each other and that we're a community um so I'd, but look after yourself i don't just mean look after yourself and no one else it's more look after yourself and recognize that you're part of this wider uh, section of society who can all a community who can all look out for each other so that's broadly what what um that summarizes too yeah no i i, I, I really like that and maybe we can talk a, a, a bit more or dive a little bit deeper into the the mental health aspects of of this and as you mentioned certainly these are trying times um we're all maybe you know physically trying to self-distance but trying to also stay socially connected which is uh, in of itself a, a big challenge especially when people families are being separated um generations of of families are also having to separate from each other And, you know, just speaking from my personal experience, um, you know, I have parents that live only a few miles away from, from, uh, from, from me. And, uh, you know, I would see them practically every week. And the fact that, uh, you know, I can't check in on them is, um, a real, you know, it's, it's very discouraging and, and people throughout the city are going through really tough times, uh, clearly what are the things that we should be looking for on the mental health side when it comes to self-isolation? Uh, so that's a, a great question, <clears throat> Q. So uh, your your situation with your family is, is, a, is a very sad situation currently and it is unfortunately not a unique situation. Uh, many, many people are feeling like they are trying their best to keep in touch with their family and loved ones. But uh, frankly, it's it's more and more difficult, especially when a lot of the contact you have is either through a screen or through a window or at a distance where you actually can't touch each other. And um, that's one of the things that I think that this kind of isolation is causing is this uh, not being able to touch people um, even just hug people and that, that losing that part of everyday life studies have shown how actually being able to physically touch your loved ones really, really decreases anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so those are the, some brief, uh, 
small effects which can actually uh, become bigger and bigger over time. Now, of course, prolonged physical distancing can also result in um, increased feelings of loneliness. Now, more and more of us are actually living alone and more and more of us are having fewer and fewer kids, if any. Um, in fact, so in America itself, uh, 28% of households are single person, mm-hmm. um, up from 23% about 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in Stockholm, about 60% of people live alone. But <clears throat> being alone and loneliness are related but different things and so this current situation exacerbates uh, that feeling of um, being alone translating into being lonely now that loneliness has uh, long-term and deep effects on people's mental health Uh, some people show uh, that uh, you know previous research has shown that the health consequences of loneliness, it can be equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of its impact on cardiovascular disease and stroke uh, and premature death. Um, and it can increase the chances of dementia. Mm. But just generally, your, your mood suffers. And as your mood suffers and you fall into a depression, it becomes harder and harder to break that cycle. So the more that you have a, a depressive episode um, where you can lose sleep, uh, not want to get out of bed, have low energy, have concentration problems, uh, feelings of guilt, slowing down, uh, the more likely you are to have another episode. And so it's a kind of spiral of depression. And that is, is, is definitely exacerbated by being isolated from each other, especially in this current situation. But um, generally, you know, as people feel more and more alone, they are more more likely to suffer both mentally and physically. Are there comparisons that can be made between the effects that rising temperatures have on mental health and depression versus something like pandemics that we're experiencing right now? Are they, are they the, I don't know if, if, if this is the way to kind of phrase it, but are they the same types of depression or are we looking at different, things, different clinical things or that need different sort of clinical responses? Well, I mean, uh, it's a great question. The sort of overriding theme, it's not, it's the, the, the pathways between, uh, mental health outcomes and rising temperatures and climate change are <laughs> complicated. Uh, they are not necessarily fully, uh, explained. Mm. Um, but in terms of common themes which may emerge from these isolation periods due to pandemics and uh, rising temperatures, maybe feelings of helplessness and despair that you're sort of losing control or you've lost control of influencing your immediate surroundings and your immediate situation. So seeing that uh, people are suffering and you are powerless to help them, that's one way in which you can sort of feel uh, that you're unhappy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so in in a similar way, sort of having climate grief and eco grief and looking around at the world and seeing that you are uh, feeling powerless to do anything is also another way. But in terms of rising temperatures, uh, having the body under more stress and anxiety because it's working harder to, to sort of maintain a healthy condition is another way that you can cause depression and, and anxiety from actually 
just not being in a comfortable situation for uh, any prolonged for a prolonged period of time can can have uh, strange effects on your mental health. Right. So there are parallels, but I, I would say that one of the things about mental health and, and climate change is that, uh, as I just said, there are lo- complicated pathways which have uh, broadly not been fully explored and so that's part of what i'm interested in my research and how to explore those spaces okay. um but given the given how the pandemic is is occurring it's a very relevant issue as to how th- those two those two kind of separate but related sources of mental health um adverse outcomes can actually be um linked up and, and examined side by side i want to circle back to your paper and um some of the key findings that that you had, uh, with your paper, uh, like I said before, I thought it was, um, so really opening in, in ways and, and something that people just don't, uh, talk about. Do you want to just run through some of the key things that we should take away from the paper itself? Yes. So in terms of the link between sort of rising temperatures, climate change, uh, weather and health, uh, and health outcomes, such as different causes of death and different causes of hospitalization. We know a lot about connections between rising temperatures uh, and deaths from, say, infectious and non-communicable diseases like uh, diabetes and things like cardiovascular disease. But we have less evidence about measuring the impact of warmer temperatures on deaths due to injuries, and that was a focus of my paper. So injuries is a sort of broader term than just falling over. It includes things like uh, suicides, assaults, drownings, traffic accidents, and falling over. Uh, So those are relatively less explored. And so one of the interesting things is that there were clearly seemed to be links uh, that were admittedly uh, elementary links in terms of how far along people had researched them, but there were clear links. And so often we found that people were discounting injury deaths in studies of linking temperatures to uh, adverse health outcomes. And so that was one of the key drivers of why we did what we did. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about things that we should take away from your paper? Well, so the, 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 the key findings really is that uh, there were robust and strong links between rising temperatures and rising injury deaths from suicides, assaults, drownings, and transport accidents. And it would be around a thousand additional deaths per degree uh, in the United States uh, based on this current population. And the large majority of those deaths would occur in adolescent to middle-aged males. So the the large majority of deaths will also be from deaths from assault, suicides, drownings, and transport accidents. And the, the largest single cause of additional deaths would be from transport accidents. And that would be closely followed by suicides. So if if uh, the association between rising temperatures and injury deaths was causal, uh, then climate change is likely to cause more injury deaths, so more deaths from suicides, assaults, uh, transport injuries, and uh, and drownings. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the 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 
the kind of thrust of the paper is really to highlight that there are, say, potentially hidden burdens of climate change. I would say broadly that we are fully aware of the, the, the deaths that cause from, say, a catastrophic flood, which may be exacerbated by climate change, or a hurricane, which may be more powerful uh, due to climate change. But the sort of residual and longer lasting impacts of those or more kind of uh, under the radar impacts are are there and the signals are clearer and clearer as more and more research looks into this. Uh, so that's that's kind of a sort of summary of, of our findings and the implications for it. Yeah. And are there steps or i mean i uh, thinking back to your the last line of your haiku look after yourself I, I i kind of understand a bit better where that sort of fits in since uh you know when we're talking about this wide array of of uh, things that, that that do happen when temperatures rise um do you have any i guess recommendations or things that people should be looking at Sure. So I think first and foremost, fundamental basic research is always of interest to 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 try and understand the problem more. So more and more research into this into this sphere, more and more funding should should be provided and should be explored and should be applied for. Mm. And so that is why I would say because my study was just our study was just in the United States. And so there are many other countries which may actually be more vulnerable than the United States to this effect. So um, in terms of what the policy relevance may be for now and into the future, I think that there are a few things to talk about here. The first thing is that while people like to talk about rising temperatures and climate change, uh, right, unusual temperatures happen all the time today. You know, people often say, well, this is very warm for this time of year. Mm. And so those those anomalous temperatures, as you might call them, occur all the time. And so it's necessarily now it's necessary now to try and have policies which may address those anomalous temperatures. So for example, you know, investing in more public transport from a, a sort of wider societal uh, point of view may improve city connectivity, which can reduce, say, traffic and could reduce opportunity for traffic accidents while also having the co-benefit of reducing air pollution. Um, and so that more investment in social connectivity would make it easier for people in different parts of an urban environment to, to sort of not feel isolated and be able to connect with each other. Mm. Of course, not during a, a global pandemic, um, right. but during <laughs> periods of normal uh, no normality. Right. Um, and that can alleviate feelings of despair and, and loneliness. But at the community level, uh, in terms of what would happen now, this sort of may help people to understand that this study anyway, that during warmer temperatures, someone who's uh, ap appearing to be fine physically at least may not be fine on the inside mentally. So really it's just a kind of encouragement to, to, to look out for and check in on each other right. and try and build a sense of community wherever you are. Uh, that's especially true given the sort of age of pandemic we're living in. And even just small actions can, can have a big impact on, on the well-being of ourselves and each other and in the community itself. And clearly, right, as you said, we're not living right now in a, in a time of normality, I was curious with what's happening, um, you know, around the world and, and during this global pandemic, 
uh, I, I've noticed that people are just, I mean, maybe not, not noticing different things, but sort of extending their range a bit and trying to look at evidence of what, how people are behaving in certain ways, um, how um, the effects that the coronavirus is having on their research. Um, you talked about transportation, you talked about pollution and, and also how it all dovetails with, with our, with our health. Do you have any thoughts on where, you know, how, how the pandemic itself and, and things that you've observed and, and, you know, how, how you're looking at it through the lens of, of what you study and the research that you do? Uh, yes. So in terms of my focus on air pollution, now it's, it's sort of been widely publicized how much the air pollution in New York and worldwide has dropped precipitously uh, at this time of year compared with this equivalent time last year. Um, in fact, you know, say, for example, carbon monoxide has dropped around 50% in New York City compared with this time last year. And you can have other similar statistics for other pollutants. Uh, and in particular, my focus is on fine particulate matter. So you might hear the, the phrase PM 2.5. Uh, and that can, the, the reason that people focus on that is because it's a kind of pollutant which can penetrate uh, into the body and cause all kinds of adverse health impacts, such as exas exacerbating existing cardiovascular disease um, and that could lead to early death uh, from that and other and from aggravating other things like asthma um, it can also have other developmental impacts such as on mental health um, but there is a clear link between lowering air pollution and lowering uh, these pr the prevalence of these causes of death uh, and extending life expectancy. So the, the, one of the recent studies that I did last year was to look at how in the United States, the reduction of air pollution can be attributing to the uh, improvement of life expectancy over the past decades. And you, you can find that maybe about 20% of the improvement of life expectancy in the United States is kind of due to if the effect is causal, which we believe it is, due to uh, lowering of air pollution levels to historic lows. Now, in terms of the pandemic, the relevance that that has is that some people are getting very excited about the fact that uh, we have a very low air pollution level. So you might call it something like a silver lining um, such that, uh, well, you know, we've got a global pandemic, but we now have maybe fewer deaths from air pollution at this particular time. Now, I understand why people are excited about that kind of stuff. But in my t in my in my everyday uh, academic sort of sphere, I think that it's, it's very it's a very short term uh, success because I think while there may be fewer people uh, dying from air pollution, uh, at this very time, I think that's vastly outweighed by the people who would be suffering and probably ending up dying and having adverse health conditions due to directly contracting uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus, as well as downstream economic impacts such as losing jobs, right. uh, becoming homeless or, or going bankrupt in particular in the United States due to the, uh, the, the sort of current system of healthcare. And so <clears throat> I would say that that kind of point of view from my research is is I find that we should maybe focus away from being excited that there are short term fewer deaths and, and lower exposure to air pollution during coronavirus, but rather try and understand what that may have in terms of implications 
for society going forward. So uh, those um, another aspect of the fact that there's lower air pollution is that um, people who are suffering from coronavirus, uh, it, it's 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 likely that their their conditions are would be exacerbated by higher air pollution as previous studies of a similar coronavirus back in 2003 uh, SARS uh, showed that you know elevated air pollution can up to double the risk of of death from from those conditions uh, and so can completely aggravate an existing coronavirus condition so what that means is lower air pollution means uh being more likely to pull through coronavirus and and similar uh, global pandemic conditions right. so part of part of what we want to do is if we want to flatten the curve we want to also minimize air pollution at all times because that can prevent mild cases of uh, coronavirus or covid-19 in this case right. turning into more acute turning into more, more acute cases right and, uh, and we're and certainly so, not aware of of what the recurrence of uh, COVID nineteen might be like, uh, you know, a year a year from now, for example, right, and or, or even months uh, later in in the fall, um, uh, in, right. So the overall goal of trying to reduce air pollution to reduce the vulnerability of people who are affected by COVID like um, viruses, right? It sounds like a, a certainly a thing that we should be thinking about. Um, and right, I, I totally echo what you're saying. This is not a time to celebrate, uh, you know, lowering of, of pollution levels, but it is an important time to to certainly look at the, you know, what the effects are. And and I guess uh, I'm just curious: is is do you think that anyone is looking at also the, um, maybe mental effects of how lower pollution or, or lower emissions, or just generally the the behavioral sort of effects that it might have in the, in the future as well? Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's, a, there's a body, a growing body of research which examines the links between air pollution, developmental disorders and mental health outcomes such as suicide and assault. And that's kind of uh, more sort of, I would say more work needs to be done, but there's some interesting research going on. I think it's... Uh, Isabel Braithwaite in London is looking has released a study last year linking air pollution with rising uh, suicides. Mm. So there, there, there are there are um, studies which which uh, examine that. Um, I think what I, is important, rather than celebrating the lower air pollution because it say in of itself has lower air pollution. I think we should use the opportunity much like in when, when Iceland had a volcano eruption in 2010, how, how it allowed us to examine previously held opinions about the structure of society. So for example, we always would just take it without to be, we take it as gospel that for example there needs to be big conferences every year that people need to go to and we need to mingle with each other and we need to sort of fly from all over the world and go to all these places whereas coronavirus now this current pandemic is showing us that remote working is something which works very well mm -hmm. it can lower emissions we're flying less we're using cars less so maybe this can teach us that society doesn't have to be the way we're just programmed to ha to have it and that that can extend into academia that can extend into other things like caring for other people 
suddenly we're finding that there's enough money in the UK, for example, to put all homeless people in houses. Mm. And so maybe that allows us to question, well, when people say there's not enough money, what do they actually mean? Do they, did it, what, 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 what does that mean? Does that actually mean there's actually not enough money or does it mean that people haven't been shown the benefits of doing that particular thing yet? And so as soon as that feels like it's going to benefit them and it's going to benefit society as a whole, such as, you know, worrying about homeless people having coronavirus and being vectors, then suddenly people want to put them in, in, in accommodation. Mm. And so <clears throat> I would say, I would just invite people to, to think about all the different ways that life has changed um, and how that can actually have a longer lasting impact on society going forward once coronavirus is uh, under under control. That's great, Robbie. And this has been a really great conversation. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you and it, certainly there are, are going to be a lot more conversations to be had and a lot more understanding of uh, not only the, the virus itself, but just its overall societal effects. Um, my last question is to you as, uh, what are you listening to these days, uh, to, to keep you calm and to keep you going on a daily basis? <laughs> so in terms of, uh, music, I think I'll answer podcasts first. The, the thing I'm listening to by far the most, and I'm listening to it on repeat actually every day. I find it very calming. Ironically, is this podcast called 13 minutes to the moon. Okay. And so it's a podcast about the moon landings. So the first season is about Apollo 11 and the second season is about Apollo 13. And as you can imagine, those are very contrasting experiences. Nice. But what they do very well is they take the, trans the radio transcripts between Houston and and uh, the astronauts and they actually take it apart and explain it. And I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, and so in terms of what I'm listening to uh, music wise, it's a wide variety of stuff, but a lot of ambient stuff, uh, a lot of stuff which is very calming. I'm trying to find myself uh, being more and more calm. So there's a lot of classic music, classical music, sorry. And uh, I love Brian Eno. So I'm listening to a lot of Brian Eno uh, and uh, I'm listening to other sort of ambient artists like uh, William Bozinski and things like that. So that's kind of an, a New York based artist that I think people should listen to if they haven't already. Okay. Just, I find it very soothing and calming. Great. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Enjoy the icy Mount snowy caps of Vermont. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure Q and uh, I look forward to hearing this podcast and more in the future.